Micah said, our scripture today is Acts 2. It's actually going to be verse 14 through 39. Sorry, I'm not sure which page it is in your house Bible, but if you do need a house Bible, welcome to raise your hand and we can pass one out for you and that is yours to keep if you need a Bible or if you just want to use it for today, that's fine too. You just hold your hand up and we'll get one to you. So Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of, the, of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy Ones to corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How you guys doing? 
Good to see you guys. Good morning. Happy Labor Day weekend. I'm surprised to see so many people here. This is awesome. Um, Darlin, if you could um, start the calendar for me as well so I don't go 55 minutes this morning. I appreciate it. Um, so this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, this is going to be the first time I've ever preached someone else's sermon. And, uh, but Walker told me I had to do it. So this is what I'm doing. Um, that's how he really is, too. If you, you guys thought he was really like cuddly and nice, and, but he's, he's actually a tyrant. Um, just kidding. But we're, we're walking through the book of Acts. My name's Josiah. Um, this series is called Witnesses. And uh, the book is actually uh, called The Acts of the Apostles. And um, there's kind of two general responses, I think. Um, well, at least to me, there's two general responses when we read the book of Acts. And some people respond with, wow, look what those people did. And then others might respond, wow, look what God did through those people. This story in the book of Acts is a story of what God has done through his people. The question, I want to pose uh, three questions right up front this morning. And, um, and before, I, before I ask them, though, uh, I, want to, I want you to contemplate. I want you to think about your answer. These are rhetorical. You don't have to answer out loud, but you may if you'd wish. Um, but I want you to really contemplate your answer before answering it. The first question is this. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used by God? And you say, well, Josiah, that's, that's an easy one. I, I learned from a very young age. It is appropriate for me to pray, God, use me. And I'm a Christian, and I want to be used by God. Well, I, as I'm getting older, uh, I think I, I'm coming to realize that, man, not, it's, not, uh, it's not as easy just to assume that all people who claim to be Christians uh, desire to be used by God. Uh, although I believe uh, many desire his benefits, what we get from God, but to be used by God is a totally different thing. It's a totally different thing. This story is a story of people who are being used by God. Look at verse 14 with me, and we'll we'll pick it up here. Um, This starts right after this amazing event in the upper room with the 12 disciples and 120 other people, and they're praying, and they're waiting upon the Spirit, this gift that Jesus had promised, and then all of a sudden, he he ascends upon them. He descends upon them, and there's wind and fire and their tongues, and they begin to speak in other languages, and passerbyers are are perplexed, and they're amazed, and, and even some begin to mock and say, these guys are just drunk. Right, And so Peter stands up here in verse 14. He's standing up with the 11. He lifted up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which would be about nine o'clock. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote it. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter begins by using a quote from Joel uh, to explain what just happened. 
Here's, what, here's actually what happened, guys. Okay, we're not drunk, uh, but here's what happened. And he takes and he changes Joel's wording of it shall come to pass to the last days to signify that, hey, this day has come. This day is here. And we're here in the last days. We're living in the last days. In um, theological terms, this has been called the messianic age or the age of the spirit. These are the days from when Jesus, he, he, in his throne, he pours out his spirit on all the earth until the day of his return, the day of the Lord. And what has just happened is the spirit of God was poured out on his people. So from my reading of the Bible, there is no age within an age, and Jesus hasn't yet come back to close out the chapter on this time. And so if we still are in the age of the Spirit or the last days, then man, why don't we many times act as though God's Spirit is still with us? If we're still here, then why don't we act as though His Spirit, His presence is still among us and with us and in, inside of us and dwelling with us? So question number two is, do you believe that God still works in the same way today as He did back then? Do you believe that God still works in the same way today as he did back then? John Stott, um, English pastor, and I I believe just a real gift to the church. He says this, um, it'll be on the screen. He says, we must be careful not to relegate to the category of exceptional what God may intend to be the church's normal experience. Let's pause there. This is good, wise words. We must be careful not to relegate to the category of exceptional what God may intend to be the church's normal experience. The wind and the fire were abnormal, and probably the languages too. The new life and joy, fellowship and worship, freedom, boldness, and power were not. They were not. So if you're tracking with me, you answer yes to the question, I want to be used by God. And yes, I do believe that God still works in the same way today as he did back then. Then it leaves us with, well, then how do we remain faithful to the gospel that we see laid out here, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, while at the same time presenting it to a modern world? And that is the question that we ask ourselves like every day as a church, right? In one form or another, how, how do I carry out the mission that God has called me to? How do I actually bear witness to Christ in this world where people don't care about the gospel? At best or at worst, they scorn it, they mock it. Well, I believe the answer is simply this. I won't unpack it further, but the answer is this, that it is, the answer is found in the Holy Spirit of God. That's how. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is holy. He is a person. He is not just some like fabrication or a uh, personification like, uh, like Santa Claus is a personification of all things cheery and good, right? The Holy Spirit is a person and he's working and he loves and he's a comforter. What does he do? Well, simply, he points us to Jesus, 
The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. That sounds maybe like an oversimplification of things, but I don't believe it is. I believe it's truly, this is his work, this is his job, this is his ministry. Jesus in John, he tells the disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the spirit of God does. He points us to Jesus. And what do we do as church? Well, we focus on Jesus. We focus on Jesus. After Peter quotes Joel, what's the first thing he mentions? What's the first thing he mentions? We skip down there to verse 22. Jesus. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. The presence of the Spirit causes followers of Jesus to declare and proclaim the mighty works of God. The presence of the Spirit of God causes the people of God to proclaim the mighty works of God. And there is no greater work than what God has done in Jesus. This is our story. This is what we proclaim. This is the good news. And Peter lays out, he lays out six different stages of Jesus, which we're going to walk through. Um, I'm going to try to be as, as quick as possible so we get to application at the end here. Um, and we're, we're only going to look at five. He does six here, and, and they are this, his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his salvation, and then what we'll look at next week, Christ's community, his community. Let's read this passage, continue in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Here's, a, here's what I want us to understand, um, and I believe what the Spirit of God wants us to understand this morning about Jesus' life and ministry is this, that there was not a single thing that Jesus did on this earth void or apart from the Holy Spirit's power within him. Not a single thing that Jesus did in walking this earth that he did void of the Spirit of God working in and through him. He was birthed by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, led into temptation by the Spirit. He conquered temptation by the Spirit, cast out demons, proclaimed good news, liberated the religious, set free the captive, healed the handicapped, all by the Holy Spirit within him and the power that was within him. And Isaiah, the prophet, he spoke to this. He affirmed this. He said, look to this day. He said in Isaiah 11, he said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. Jesus came, he laid down his life. He took on flesh. He lived the life that you and I could not live. He did that. And, and, and I want that to become a catchphrase for us. No, he, guys, we must remember that we could not live this life. Jesus had to walk it for us. He had to be the person to lead the way. And so he took on flesh. 
But this does not mean that he was no longer God, right? We must also couple this and leave it in tension where the Bible clearly you know, tells us that he was both man and God. He was, he was still with his divine power. He did not cease to be God, but as Philippians 2 tells us, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I think this is proven um, most explicitly in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted. You guys remember Satan tempts him to turn the stones into bread because he had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. And, and if Jesus could not turn the stones into bread, well, the temptation's meaningless. The point is he could turn the stones into bread, but he did not, right? Jesus, fully God, fully man, relied upon the spirit of God within him to overcome temptation. He let go of his divinity to become like us so that he could be our second and better Adam, our representative, our forerunner, the person to go before us to lead the way, open the way, provide a way, but then also show us the way to walk by the spirit. But he did not just live the life we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. Verse 23. This Jesus, Peter tells him, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So although Peter's not really unpacking really a doctrine of atonement yet, he does hold out two really important items in, in tight tension here, and, and, and they're this. That Jesus had been handed over by God to death. Handed over to death by God. And that he died at the hands of sinful men. And this is important because it was your sin, it was my sin that held Jesus on the cross. It was our sin. It was the sinfulness of all mankind manifested in the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders there at the time who nailed him down on that wooden tree. It was a sin of denial and betrayal and self-centeredness and greed. And it's no different than the way we treat God today. It's no different than the sin that we have against God today. And we dare not look back at the time and say, man, how dare they? When you and I treat God with as much contempt. So we must see that it was our sin. Our sin that held him on that tree. And remember that this man that was nailed to the tree had an intimacy with God that you and I will never know until we see him face to face. He walked with God. And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And there in the garden of Gethsemane, probably the greatest picture of all Jesus' humanity he could have just said, that's it, I'm done, you know? But he doesn't. He leans in to the great comforter, the spirit of God that's within him, and he fixes his eyes on Jerusalem, and he walks the road of suffering. For the joy set before him, Romans tells us. Be convinced of this church that Jesus could not have done this in his own flesh. I'm convinced of that but by the Spirit of God that was in him. He did not rely upon his flesh, but the Spirit that was within him. So we had his life and ministry, his death and his resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held 
by it. Since God was the one who handed Jesus over to death, it was not possible for death to have any kind of hold on Christ. But Peter also saw that it was important and it was, impossi- it was an impossibility because of the witness, the prophetic witness of Jesus that he demonstrates here in Joel and in the Psalms. And here in Psalm 16, he quotes David, the King, King David, and he says this, read it with me. In verse 25, David says concerning him, being Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, for my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy Spirit see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. This may seem odd to us for him to quote Psalms and kind of relate it to Jesus in this way, but not really when we understand that all of Scripture bears witness to Christ. All of Scripture bears witness to Jesus. And this was Jesus' teaching post-resurrection. If you remember when he met with the disciples, the Bible tells us that he opened their eyes to understand the Scriptures. And I could just see Jesus walking through the passages in the Old Testament and saying, this was me, this was me. This was me, right? He opened their eyes to see that, wow, this has always been pointing to you, Jesus. And so for Peter, it was an impossibility because of the truth spoken years, hundreds of years beforehand about Christ that, that he could remain in the grave. Death would not have any hold on him. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's just saying that, look, David was saying this, but David was prophesying of somebody else, right? Um, David's in a grave next to us, right? We know this, he can't be speaking of himself. So who is he speaking of? He was speaking of Jesus. And what we see here is the Old Testament and the New Testament coinciding in their witness of Jesus' resurrection, Peter begins to unpack this so well for the crowd that's there. And he continues to, leading into his exaltation. Let's skip down to verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For God did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now he begins to quote Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I, I could see G, uh, Peter thinking, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he was there when Jesus quoted the same passage to the Pharisees. And he's saying, man, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. And he begins to unpack for the crowd. Look, look, this is Jesus. This is the Christ that we've all been reading about. This is him. It's true. We know David's body is in the tomb. We've already covered that. So he must be speaking of someone else. And it's Jesus. And it's important also to see that Jesus, this word exaltation is important for us to understand too because Jesus didn't become Lord in Christ when he ascended to heaven, right? But rather he was exalted as Lord in Christ. God exalted him to be in reality and in power what he was already by right. 
Philippians 2 again tells us because Jesus didn't hold on to his position, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, yes, even death upon a cross, God what? Exalted him. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And it's from this place of authority then, now Jesus is reigning, this place of authority at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus pours out his spirit on the earth, on all flesh, as it tells us. Think about the wording, pours out with me. It's pouring out. It's this kind of like gratuitous type of image. Like it's just ongoing, unceasing, flowing ever, ever more. He's pouring it out. The Spirit's ministry is that of abundance to his church. We should not shortchange Jesus' generosity to the church. Jesus not only gives us a great gift, but he gives us the best gift possible himself. He gives us his spirit. He does not hold back anything. He gives us everything. He says, it's better that I would go so that the comforter might come, so that the helper might come. It's better that I go so that you might have all that you need. Again, what was Jesus doing? He's pointing us to the fact, the fact that, look, I I led the way, I opened the way, I showed you the way. Now you walk in that way by the Spirit. That's what Jesus was doing. And it's what Peter is unpacking. And it's what he's seeing. I could just put myself in Peter's position. The spirit of God had descended upon him. Remember, this is Peter we're talking about, right? The denier of Jesus, right? Just kind of retrace the steps with me. Peter, who said, I will never deny you, Christ. Never. And right in the thick of things, what does he do? He denies him. Not once, not twice. Three times in one night. And there... After the Spirit of God ascends upon him and the dwelling of his presence is upon him, he begins to proclaim the mighty acts of God. And he stands up and he proclaims his gospel to this crowd. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people were added. 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus. This is what the Spirit of God leads his church to do. I believe that wholeheartedly. His salvation, verse 37 Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We must see Jesus' gift of salvation as um, both the forgiveness, the atonement of our sins, but also the indwelling presence of his spirit for us. That these are not separate. We do not believe that there is this two-step process. But in the moment that we are saved, our sins are forgiven, that we are justified before God, and we are given the spirit of God. I do believe in a continual, ongoing um, filling and renewal of the Spirit of God, in which we will unpack at a later time, hopefully, in this book. But what we're talking about here is this initial filling of the Spirit of God that all believers are given. 
All believers have this spirit within them. And we're talking about a one stage, a single yet multifaceted gift that God gives his people. And so when we ignore the spirit of God, the, the gift of his indwelling spirit to us, when we ignore that, then we treat him as though he's simply an agent of God's work and not the precious gift of God. And I believe this leads us to despise God's plan. We're like, whoa, that's harsh. Well, Jesus' plan, God's plan for his church is to take her, to wash her with his word, to call her out of the world by her name, to renew her thinking and doing, and then send her back out into the world to transform and to call other people to that purpose. How do we do that apart from the Holy Spirit of God? I don't know. (laughs) I honestly don't have an answer. The only answer I have is that the Spirit of God will lead us there. The Spirit of God will lead his church there. He will lead us to this universal salvation. Not universal in the sense of that everyone will be saved. We know that, that, it, that it won't be the case. But the salvation is universal to all mankind. That all people have this call to salvation. And the call to bring that call is the same as well. It is also universal. Although there are spiritual conditions to being saved, there is no social or economical or any other type of construct that you could put up um, to being filled with the Holy Spirit or receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we must go to all mankind. So we're, here's my call to us this morning is that we're called to be a witness. We're called to be a witness. Peter tells the crowd that they are witnesses of Jesus being raised from the dead. It's true that you and I were not there. We did not witness Jesus being raised from the dead. We did not walk with him personally. But does this make, does this make um, our experience with God any less genuine or important? When Jesus sends out his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, surely it had to apply others beyond them so that it would reach more than just the Middle Eastern region. And yet, these people would not be eyewitnesses of Jesus, of his life, of his death, or his resurrection. But yet, they were still called to go. And they were still called to bear witness. And Joel... The prophecy is talking about this kind of, it's this universal prophecy. Um, so there, it is true, like in all of New Testament generally and specifically in the book of Acts, there are instances where um, there is this gift of prophecy that, it, that not everyone will have. Um, but here in this prophecy, it seems to suggest this universal prophecy. And so we say, well, how is that? You know, if not all will have the gift of prophecy, well, Calvin says, referring to Joel 2, he says that prophecy, visions, and dreams are the same thing. And if the essence of prophecy is God speaking, if the essence of prophecy is God speaking, God revealing himself through his word, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that word, then by definition, we're all prophets. Because we proclaim the one who put on flesh 
We preach the one who was crucified and risen and who is coming again. We preach that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, that he is the chosen one that God has chosen to make himself known in all of the earth. We preach Christ. We preach the gospel. So just as there is this universal call to salvation, there's also this universal call to be a witness of that salvation. In fact, it is the universal knowledge of God through Christ and by the Spirit that is the foundation for the universal commission to be a witness of that. In Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses. You follow me? Here's, here's the bottom line of, of what I just said. Because we know him, we must make him known. Because we know him, we must make him known. And what has God done in your life? What has he done in your life, Christian, by his life, by his death and his resurrection that has changed you? That's what you're called to be a witness of. That's not, that's not void of what of what the Bible has shown us and taught us. It's not your experience over what the Bible says, right? We don't have this kind of fantasy gospel. No, it's a real, tangible, it's objective gospel, objective truths that we proclaim. But it's through those truths of the gospel, the promises of the gospel, that have changed us. And what has God done in you? That's what you're called to proclaim. That's what you're called to Maybe you're like me and you grew up in the faith and you didn't, you didn't experience this, this kind of like radical outward transformation, right? Like, you know, I, I, wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't hooked on drugs. I wasn't in a gang or, or whatever. I'm just trying to think of something really out, out there. Um, and I don't mean to say that, that that's, you know, forget it. I'm digging myself a hole. Um, so... But what I mean is that from the external sense of that phrase, like there was not this like radical transformation. Like everyone saw me like, whoa, who is he? You know? And so all my life I've kind of struggled with this understanding of seeing God's work in my life. Seeing how God is transforming me. Seeing the evidence of his fingerprints on my life. The personal aspect of the Spirit's work is hard for me to see at times because it's not this ex- necessarily this external drastic change. And if that's you, then pray to the Spirit of God to exalt Christ in your mind, to exalt him to the place that he is. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is all these things that we proclaim. And what does that mean to you personally? Maybe you have experienced a radical outward transformation by God's power, but yet you struggle to find uh, the words for other people to relate to because it was such a personal thing, right? To you also pray to the Spirit that Jesus would be exalted in your mind and you would see the universal call of all salvation. You would see how the Bible and the, the what Jesus has done in the gospels applies to all mankind. What does the Holy Spirit do? He leads us this way. He takes the beauty and the majesty of Jesus in his ministry and his rule over all things and he makes it simple to our minds and our hearts. He, like, like a mother, applies the balm to her child's womb so the Spirit of God applies the work of the gospel to us.
And he makes it real and tangible to us. I think the, the best description of uh, how the, what the Holy Spirit does when he, inf- when he fills us is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has this description. He, like when, when Moses in Exodus, I believe it was chapter 40, um, he says, God, show me your glory. God took him and he, he put him in the cleft of the rock and he passed in front of him. And he says that he proclaimed his name to him. He declared his name to them, right? And so the same thing Jesus does or the spirit of God does for us, he takes us and he puts us in Christ and he declares his name to us. He declares his covenant love to us. And again, we understand that, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I have received forgiveness of my sins. Yes, I am a new creation. I am no longer who I was, but I am in Christ. And we begin to walk forward with that understanding. That's what the Spirit of God does. He makes it tangible to us. He makes it real for us. And so to the application today, um, if we are called to be witnesses, we're called to be witnesses to a whole gospel. We're called to be witnesses to a holistic gospel. And what we do is we begin with Jesus. We begin with Jesus. We start there. Do you, is, this, is this your tendency? Is this your, um, your go-to when, when you're talking with people that don't know Christ? Or is it to uh, just fix them and change their behaviors? Are you pointing people to, are you leading people to find the treasure, the greatest treasure in the whole world? Or are you just trying to change them and fix them? Jesus is the treasure. He's the one to behold. And beholding him, we forget about everything else. Point people to Jesus. Begin with him. And these other things I I took from John Stott, I kind of rearranged them a little bit, but I think they're helpful. And it is um, walk through the events of the gospel. Walk through the events of the gospel. Don't assume that people know the gospel. It, it's kind of a simple rule um, in, in leadership in the church, and it's, it's never assume the gospel, never assume that people understand the gospel. If that's within the church, how much more is outside the church? We should not assume that our, uh, the people in this world understand the gospel. I know we live in a Christian nation, but we must walk through the gospel the events of the gospel with people so that they see Jesus in the Bible. And then the second thing is a witness of the gospel. Is a a witness of the gospel. Can you show how the gospel applies? Can you show how what Jesus did actually applies to today? I like to ask the question, what what about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means anything for me right now? in this moment? Does it bear any kind of weight upon this situation, upon my life? Because it ought to, because it changes everything. If he did live a life that we just talked about, if he did die the death that we just talked about, if he did rise again, if he is exalted in heaven, then that changes everything. Can we apply that? Then there's the promises of the gospel. The promises of the gospel. Not just what Jesus did, but what he offers. What Jesus offers. Because it is by what he has done that he has promised us. 
Not just good things, guys, but the best things, the only things that matter. And it's by reviewing, reviewing these promises to our own hearts and preaching these promises that we point people to this Jesus who is, who is the one to be treasured. And then there's the conditions of the gospel. Yes, there are conditions to the gospel. And the conditions are that you must repent, you must turn from your sin, you must believe in Jesus, you must put your trust in Christ. And in doing so, as Peter tells him, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive it. This is the promise. John Stott again, finally, he says, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. It's so possible. We need to see that it is so possible for us to have a church to build this up, to get as many people in these doors as we possibly can, to have incredible ministries, to have just fantastic music, have eloquent speakers, and be completely void of the Spirit of God. It's possible. In in fact, it's been done and is being done. We must be on guard about that. And that's not just the pastor and the pastors and the leaders saying that we're going to lead this way. It is that for sure. Absolutely. But it is the church to say that we will walk by the Spirit. We will not walk by the flesh. We will be obedient to Christ. And we will know that we can actually be obedient to Christ and what he has called us to because of the Spirit of God that is within us. We will walk in a manner that is holy. We will be holy because he is holy because Christ has made it so. We will be witnesses to the ends of the earth because Jesus is with us to the ends of the earth. And we will not stop until everyone on the whole planet knows his name. We will be witnesses in this city, in our neighborhoods, across this nation, and across the world. That's the call. And it feels daunting and it feels overwhelming. Yes, yes, but yet we must trust and know that the Spirit of God is with us. He indwells in us. And so we can have hope and we can trust and we can have joy. We can do this with joy. That's where I want to go. And I want want you guys to go with me, right? We're going to stand and we're going to sing this song. It's just going to point us back to the...